Our culture has done its best to render Christmas impotent, powerless, innocuous and inoffensive. The Christmas that most Australians celebrate is lively and fun, but it's not life-changing. There's a huge amount of build-up and hype. Christmas Day comes and goes, the decorations come down, and it's all forgotten about. But Jesus entering his creation as a human baby is the most immensely significant and mind-blowingly radical event that's ever occurred in the history of the universe. The only exception to that might be the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, but you can't get to one without the other. And yet this momentous event has been relegated to the category of cute. Christmas is just cute. You have secular cute. That's cartoon penguins wearing Santa hats, kissing under the mistletoe and other such images. And then you have Christian cute. Uh, That's a, a cartoon of baby Jesus surrounded by farmyard animals uh, lying in a manger uh, with Mary and Joseph there that themselves depicted as toddlers. It's Christian, it's on message, but it's just cute. And we like cute. We're comfortable with cute. Cute doesn't ruffle any feathers. Cute doesn't demand a response. But the story that Luke tells The one that we've heard this morning is not cute. Luke is describing the beginning of a revolution. Let me give you the dictionary definition of revolution. One, an overthrow or repudiation and the thorough replacement of an established government or political system. Two, a radical and pervasive change in society and the social structure. Three, A sudden, complete, or marked change in something. And the story that Luke tells indicates that all three of those definitions fit the kind of revolution that Jesus is bringing. What's more, it will be a revolutionary revolution. In other words, it won't take place in the same way that other revolutions have taken place. We can all think of well-known and significant revolutions. The American Revolution, usually known as the American War of Independence. The French Revolution. The Russian Revolution, led by Vladimir Lenin. The Chinese Revolution, led by Mao Zedong. The Cuban Revolution, led by Fidel Castro, and so on and so on. Well, Whether the results of a revolution are judged by history to be good or bad, one thing's for sure. Revolutions usually involve a lot of bloodshed, and or the rise to power of a dictator. Peaceful revolutions have taken place, like Gandhi's salt march, but that's not the norm. Historically, revolutions are bloody affairs, and that was universally the case in the ancient world. So the idea of revolution should make us feel a little uneasy. And yet, we find revolution right at the very heart of the gospel. So who is responsible for this revolution and what is its aim? Well, uh, Luke in this uh, chapter one introduces us to three protagonists, God the Father, God the Son, 
and God the Holy Spirit. This is a Trinitarian revolution. One God, three persons. So let's look at each of uh, those in turn. So firstly, God the Father. God the Father initiates this revolution. Of course, no first century Jew had any real concept of the Trinity. So from a Jewish point of view, it was just God. And in verses 26 and 27, we read that God sent the angel Gabriel to a virgin named Mary. Of course, God's involvement makes this a supernatural revolution. And so we shouldn't be too surprised that angels play a prominent part in Luke's account. But what are angels? Well, if you Google the word angels, you can pull up thousands of images of people dressed in white with huge bird-like wings. We don't know that's what angels look like. It's not uh, a particularly biblical picture. However, we do know that angels are created beings, created by God. Uh, They're not human, although I think the Bible indicates that they look human or they can do, and they serve as God's ministers and messengers. But we don't want to get too caught up on that because the important thing here is that God has sent this angel, the angel Gabriel. The same God that we read about in the Hebrew Bible, the same God uh, whom Israel worshipped, the same God who promised to send a Messiah to bring freedom and liberation to his people. And then God breaks 400 years of silence with this extraordinary message delivered by an angel to Mary. And the link with the God of the Old Testament, who we know as God the Father, is explicit. Firstly, Luke makes the point that Mary was a virgin. Well, Isaiah 7.14 says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And then we have Gabriel's message, and he is clearly announcing the arrival of Israel's long-awaited Messiah, uh, the the one so frequently promised by God in the pages of the Old Testament. And the angel says, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He'll be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Compare that to uh, Jeremiah 23, verse 5, an Old Testament prophecy that says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely. So there's this idea that uh, the Messiah will be a king in the line of David, a descendant of David. Or 2 Samuel 7:16, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Sounds a lot like his kingdom will never end, doesn't it? They're just two examples, but there are dozens of Old Testament prophecies that speak about the Messiah in this kind of language, and it's revolutionary language. How could any king sit on the throne of David with Rome's puppet king Herod sitting on the throne? And how could any king not approved by Rome take the throne without first overthrowing the Romans? It's revolutionary language. Uh, But we also see that this is a back-to-front revolution, an upside-down revolution. The angel says, you have found favor with God. Who has found favor with God? Mary, a teenage peasant girl 
probably no more than about 14 years of age, who lived in the most obscure of all places, a first century Palestinian town by the name of Nazareth. If you've ever been on a long road trip inland, you'll know that you get to these small towns and you stop at them, but only to buy petrol and use a bathroom and pick up some lunch. And then you get back in your car and you drive away as fast as you can, praising God that that's not where you live. Well, that was Nazareth. And Mary was just a lowly peasant girl living in a place like that. Mary is hardly the kind of person that a revolutionary leader would pick to play such a significant part in their grand plans. But God is all-powerful. God can partner with anyone he likes. God doesn't need to make political or military alliances in order to further his cause. And so often throughout the whole of Scripture, God chooses the lowly, the downtrodden, and the broken to play a part in his plans. 1 Corinthians 27 to 28 says this, But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Don't ever think that God can't use you to do great things. If you think you're the kind of person that God can't use, you are almost certainly the kind of person that God does tend to use. So we see this unbroken line from the Old Testament to the New. This is actually a very Jewish story that we're reading here in Luke's Gospel. God has announced the impending arrival of the Jewish Messiah, uh, which brings us to the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. Jesus is God's son. That is to say, the relationship between a father and a son is the closest comparison that we can make between the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. But it's not an exact comparison. It's not like God had a wife and together they had a son and the father and the son, they have this relationship. We can't think of it in purely human terms. Actually, if you speak with Muslims about the Trinity, and I have done on a number of occasions, this will come up time and time again, this repudiation of the idea that God has a son. And this is because they tend to think of this relationship between father and son in exclusively human terms. There's a thread that runs through the Quran that uh, repeatedly refutes the idea that God can have uh, a son. It, it runs like a, uh, almost like a polemic or propaganda document against the divinity of Christ. But we need to understand that Jesus isn't just God's son. He was and is God, the second person of the Trinity. As Christians, we believe in one God, Three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit. Uh, God became man. And when we stop to consider that statement, God became man. Uh, it is mind-blowing. It is shocking. It is terrifying. And it is wonderful all at the same time. Although Mary probably didn't understand the full implications, uh, she was in fact being told that she will be the mother of God. Jesus is God. 
He's the only person who ever existed before he was even conceived. We should never lose sight of how amazing it is that God should choose to enter into creation in this way. Jesus is also the uh, long-awaited messianic king. Not like the kings of this world with mixed motives and impure hearts, but perfect, holy, and righteous. Jesus is a revolutionary unlike any other revolutionary, and his kingdom will have no end. Well, as you can imagine, Mary was quite taken aback by all this, and she asked, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And here we're introduced to the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit. Gabriel replies, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. So Jesus is conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Does it matter that Mary was a virgin when she conceived? Absolutely it matters. Luke tells us three times. He really stresses the point. Um, But this was potentially a scandalous detail to include in his gospel. The only reason to include it is that it's true and it's important. And that's why Luke tells us three times we are to understand that this is a conception like no other conception that has ever occurred. The Holy Spirit is prolific in this first chapter of Luke and throughout the New Testament. Of course, the Holy Spirit is also prolific in the Old Testament, but it's not always quite so obvious, and you don't get this outpouring of the Spirit like we have from Jesus onwards. Uh, So Mary visits her cousin Elizabeth, who's pregnant with John the Baptist. And when Elizabeth hears Mary's greeting, uh, she is filled with the Holy Spirit, and the, uh, the baby leaps in her womb. And already we know from earlier on in, uh, in Luke chapter 1 that John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit before he was even born. Uh, a few weeks ago we were talking about abortion because of all the new uh, laws that are getting pushed through. Well, if you want evidence that the unborn are people, human beings made in the image of God, here it is. John is filled with God's Spirit while he is still in his mother's womb. God doesn't fill animals or plants or inanimate objects with his spirit. Only human beings are ever said to be filled with the spirit of God. And here we have John the Baptist filled with God's spirit before he's born. So the Holy Spirit is very clearly present here in the opening chapter of Luke. In fact, there's no chapter in the Bible that emphasizes the work of the Holy Spirit uh, as much as Luke chapter 1. This is a truly Trinitarian revolution. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But just in case you still have doubts that this is a revolution, let's take a look at Mary's song, starting at verse 52. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. If you are a member of the French aristocracy in the late 18th century, and you heard the working classes, the peasant classes, using that kind of language, he has brought down rulers from their thrones. You heard that kind of language, you would have very good reason to be worried. 
as you know, tens of thousands of people from the higher echelons of society uh, were executed, guillotined during the French Revolution. Uh, This is dangerous language. So is Mary using subversive, shocking, and potentially dangerous language? Well, yes and no. Yes, because that's how her words would be construed. Most uh, first century Jews would, uh, would have anticipated a Messiah who would lead a revolution akin to any other revolution that the world has seen. But ultimately, the answer has to be no. Because God's revolution, the Trinitarian revolution, is not what anyone would have expected or anticipated. Jesus, the revolution's leader, will not perpetrate violence, quite the opposite. He will allow violence to be done to him as he dies for our sins upon the cross. That is the reason that Jesus came into the world. And whenever we celebrate Christmas, we must do so with Easter and the cross in sight. Jesus entered the world that hates him, a world that tried to kill him from the outset. You remember Herod's murder of the innocents. He came to establish a new and everlasting kingdom. And if we want to understand just how different that kingdom is from the kingdoms of this world, this is the place to start. The story of the nativity, the Christmas story. Here we see almighty God, our sovereign creator, all-powerful, all-knowing, love in person, emptying himself, humbling himself, and coming into the world as a tiny, defenseless, vulnerable human child. The event that we are celebrating in two days' time is not powerless or innocuous or cute. It is the beginning of a revolution. And as with all revolutions, we have to decide whose side we are on. Are we going to oppose this revolution or are we going to be part of it? The next time Jesus comes into the world in a physical way will be at the end of time as we know it, when he comes to judge the living and the dead. At that time, evil will be abolished. The corrupt power structures of this world will be overthrown. Death will be no more. The revolution will be complete. Revelation 21 verses 4 to 5 say this. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. This is the ultimate reality that the angel's message and Mary's song point us to. Uh, It is hopeful beyond anything we might dare to imagine. And I hope that you'll agree that we cannot afford to relegate God's cosmic revolution to the category of cute. It is far too important for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that the significance and the magnitude of these events that we're reading about and hearing about and celebrating will sink deep within our hearts. That we'll see that 
Christmas and the entire Christian message is not something we can pay lip service to. It's not something we can push to the sidelines or the margins. This is a a revolution. It signals a change uh, to, to the world that we live in. And ultimately, it means that we can be made right with you. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that we will put our complete trust and faith in Jesus. That Jesus will reign in our lives. That we will allow the Holy Spirit to work in every area of our lives. That there will be no closed doors to God's Spirit, to your Spirit. And we pray, Heavenly Father, this uh, Advent, that we will continue to watch and wait for the day when you return to make this revolution complete. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.